Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. with your host, Spike Cullen. Yes. Yes, it's me. It's me. I'm here. I'm here. It's Wednesday. Keep clapping. Clap for the Spike is back on Wednesday, Miracle. How would we know that you were excited about the Spike is back Wednesday, Miracle? If you didn't keep clapping, welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you for taking this time out of your busy, busy Wednesday night to come join us here, me, 
a Jew in his guest room and you, a person of whatever faith, ethnicity, or lack thereof in wherever you are for this special time together to talk about all sorts of things. This is my 100th episode. Yeah. Yep. I didn't even realize that as I'm putting everything together and I'm I'm looking it up today and I'm like, episode number 100. Yeah. So thank you for being a part of this journey. It's fantastic. I've got a great guest tonight. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Check us out everywhere on all social media platforms, on all podcasting platforms. Check us out on anchor.fm slash muddied waters, where you can not only leave uh, questions and messages for us that we will play and answer on the Muddy Waters of Freedom on Tuesday nights at eight, uh, but you can also make donations if you'd like to. You don't have to, but if you'd like to, and we'll read your name right here on the show. Um, So thank you so much. And also, as always, go to muddiedwatersmedia.com for this and every single episode of Muddy Waters Media, as well as the Muddy Waters Store and all sorts of other fun stuff. Be sure to like us, follow us, uh, subscribe to us, press the bell. If you're on YouTube, we want your phone to explode every time we go live. Don't miss out on that. Uh, And be sure to comment and share this right now. Share this right now. The last thing I want is for uh, Mark Zuckerberg to not see you sharing this content. Um, Fight back against big tech. Share this video right now. Uh, Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing waffle related caucus in this or any other party or entity of any kind, really. This is just about it. Uh, go to muddywatersmedia.com slash store to buy all the Waffle House stuff. If you want to become a member of the Waffle House Caucus, go to the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus Facebook group, which is called, oddly enough, the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. Uh, and come and join us there. The Gravy King, Joe Soloski. Joe Soloski is running for Pennsylvania governor. He is the key to Pennsylvania's success. And if you want to help him in his run for governor, go to Joe Soloski. That's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I.com. It's not my fault. The man's last name is, is it's hard to say the thing. Anyway, yes, JoeSoloski.com to find out how you can help him, help him become Pennsylvania's first libertarian governor. Mud Water. The most aptly named thing that we have ever sponsored or has ever sponsored us before. If you woke up today and said, my God, I'm sick of coffee. I want an alternative to coffee that's made out of masala chai and cacao and mushrooms, turmeric, 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 sea salt, cinnamon, and that's it. Well, friends, I have some fantastic news for you. If you go to muddywatersmedia.com slash mud, you can buy that, all of that and only that in a tin that looks like coffee and tastes. Mm, yeah. uh, it doesn't taste bad. It actually doesn't taste bad. I'm not sure it tastes like coffee, but it doesn't taste like bad. It just tastes, it's good. It's good for you. And it also has some caffeine, just enough to wake you up, but not enough to make you all freaking jittery and messed up for the rest of the day and then make you crash at night. None of that happens. Instead, you get filled with some delicious masala chai, whatever the hell that is, and mushrooms. Yum. Who doesn't like mushrooms? Not those kind, but mushrooms. And of course, this episode is brought to you by personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If you drink this mud water 
and are so disgusted by it that you find yourself to be personally injured by it. You can call him. He's not going to sue them. That's not actionable. I don't know. He might sue them for you. Maybe that's a good case. I don't know. If you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, he will represent you. Hopefully in something real. Hopefully you're not calling him unless you have a serious personal injury. And I'm not qualified to judge such a thing. I'm not an attorney. Certainly not a personal injury attorney. But Chris Reynolds is. So if you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, he'll be able to tell you if you've actually got a case. And if so, how much money he can I don't know if he can tell you how much money, but he can he can sue them. ChrisReynoldsLaw.com. The intro and outro music to this and every single episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook. Go to his SoundCloud. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography. It's like $25. Some of the best music you'll ever hear. Go do it right now. Go treat yourself to the amazing musings. No, that would be like if you're a comedian. The, the mystical musical meanderings of Joe Davi. JoeDaviMusic.BandCamp.com. Thank you, Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this molecularly perfect water that I drink on every episode of My Fellow Americans, Pool of Anaka. Mm. That tastes like the exact amount of... I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. I said I'm not going to do it. I feel like I need to do it, but I'm not going to do it. It's very good water. Thank you so much. Shout out to Taylor and Turks' mom and him as always. Folks, my guest tonight actually uh, was a pre-recorded guest. Uh, so I will be all lurking up in the comments while you watch this. But we had an incredible, incredible, fascinating discussion about these trans bills or these anti-trans bills that are being uh, debated and passed and signed uh, across the country. Um, we've heard a lot of emotion-based debates both for and against these things, but we haven't really heard a lot of legal constitutional law debates on it. We haven't really talked much about how this affects people's rights uh, for both the people that are in favor of them and the people that are against them. Um, There's been a lot of, you know, the typical uh, sensationalism that we've come to expect from, you know, media and government discourse, unfortunately, but we haven't really gotten into the brass tacks of this. How can this be enforced? Is it enforceable? Is this protecting people or is it hurting people? Uh, It was just a really incredible discussion. I thought this would be about 40 minutes long since we're talking about just one thing. We ended up talking for almost an hour and a half. It was an absolutely incredible thought provoking discussion. And so without any further ado, I'm just going to start it because it was a great thing. I will be be here. I'll be up here in the comments uh, making sure. I don't know what I'm making sure, but I'm going to be here. So be sure to come talk to me while we're watching this together. Folks, my... Oh, wow. That's weird. When I do the thing and then it goes to me... Wow. What if I... That's weird. Someone listening to this on podcast is going to have no idea what's happening here, but that's, you know, watch the video version. Then you get it. That is folks. Wow. I don't know why I'm so creeped out by that. Must be the mushrooms in the, uh, in the mud water. That's pretty cool. 
Anyway, enjoy. Folks, my guest tonight is the Donald Hinkle Professor of Law at the Florida State University College of Law. I'm so proud of myself for saying that correctly. Uh, she has published articles and essays in Harvard Law Review, North Carolina Law Review, the University of California Davis Law Review, Northwestern University Law Review, the Georgetown Law Journal, the Michigan Law Review, and the Washington and Lee Law Review, among many others. Uh, she is currently uh, teaching at FSU, and she writes at the uh, about the intersection between constitutional law and sexuality in the law. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please introduce my guest and your guest tonight, Professor Courtney Cahill. Courtney, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Spike. So glad to be here. I'm, I'm really happy to have you on. Uh, and folks, yeah. be sure to comment with your questions and thoughts. This is pre-recorded, but I am lurking in the comments and I will let you know if you are right or wrong. Now, Courtney, I before we get started, I, um, I, I always ask my guests, you know, what, what got them into the walk of life that, that they're in. You clearly are very specialized uh, in law as it relates to family law, constitutional law. What is it that got you into that? You know, everyone has their Genesis story. What is the what is the Professor Courtney Cahill Genesis story? So the Professor Courtney Kale Genesis story actually begins, <laughs> I won't go too far back, but begins before I became a professor of law. I went to graduate school, got a PhD in Italian literature, medieval Italian literature and classics. And wow. then decided since, you know, that degree had very little market power, I went to law school, which is what a lot of I us wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say yeah, it, but yes. I was, okay. No, I will fully admit, fully, fully take responsibility for that choice. I loved it. Um, my dissertation was on the sort of legal regulation of romantic relationships in 14th century Italy. Um, wow. So I've always been interested in, you know, what happens when the law tries to regulate things that are very personal? Right, right. I think that's probably what sort of caught my interest when I went to law school and eventually became a law professor. And I started some of my earliest work, I just kind of hit straight for the biggest taboos, um, was on the legal regulation of incest in the United States and whether or not incest regulations were constitutional or not. And so I kind of looked at those for a while and then, you know, sort of spun off from there. Right. So you're so it sounds like you like to avoid controversy since you're talking. <laughs> no, I remember my first job talk at a law school and it was on incest and I wow. won't name names, but it didn't go over that well. I can't imagine it would. And I mean, and if I hope, please tell me that you were able to find some way to seamlessly work in 14th century Italian family law into that. That was tough, although I did manage to work in, believe it or not. So I did 14th century Italian stuff, uh, but also classical literature. So Ovid. And there's a lot of really amazing. I feel like everything that I've worked on has already been told in poetic form in Ovid's Metamorphoses, including several different incest tales. So I, I did work my Ovid in. <laughs> you just basically so so basically most of your writing you just remove the prose and just you know take out the rhymes and stuff and 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 add it as 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 a legal liter, a legal opinion. That is basically right. 
<laughs> it's quite a quite a niche you've dug for yourself. So okay, so let's let's get into the, into this. You have been writing about um, most recently uh, um, having taken a, a hiatus from incest. Uh, you are now. Uh, writing about, you have written most recently about some of these, uh, I guess we'll call them anti-trans laws that have been passed, mostly in the Southeast uh, by Republican uh, uh, run state governments. And there's sort of a mixed bag of different things. Some are related to uh, gender reassignment or gender affirmation surgery with the, 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 gen, the um, um, that for, for people um, that are underage, also for uh, sports programs and things like that. Um, before we get into uh, what those are, can you kind of delve into what those laws are targeting and maybe give a few examples by state of, of what the specific, I guess, stated purposes of the laws are, what it is they're targeting? Sure. So I put the recent, so there was kind of a first wave of anti-trans laws with the bathroom bills a few years ago. And those have since sort of percolated through the courts. Most courts by now have come down uh, sort of against those, you know, bathroom restrictions, right? So laws that that require somebody to use the bathroom um, of the gender that's stated on their birth certificate, basically, right? It's not like, it's not as if we carry our birth certificates. I mean, at least I don't carry the birth certificates. Bathroom. So, so I would say those are kind of like the first, I mean, there's like sort of anti-trans law has a history, right? But with respect right. to the most recent anti-trans laws, I put the bathroom bills kind of first generation. What we're right. seeing in the last couple of months is what I would call the second generation anti-trans bills, which are fall into two categories. The first category are the anti-trans medical laws or medical, I should say, laws and bills, because most of them have, have not yet become enacted law. Um, so there's the, the medical bills, and then there are the sports bills, right? And the sport, anti-trans sports bills um, break down into two subcategories on their own. One group um, of the, the sports measures don't allow anyone to compete on the sports team of their choice. So they're limited to competing on the sports team of the sex that's consistent with what's on their birth certificate. Um, And then the second batch of anti-trans sports bills, which is more common batch are laws that are bills and laws that single out trans girls specifically. Right. So, so individuals who were assigned male at birth are now presenting as female um, even be taking hormone blockers. Right. So testosterone blockers, um, those, these bills, this kind of second batch of bills, which again is the largest category of anti-trans sports bills, prohibit those females from competing on female sports teams. So the first state to pass an anti-sports bill was Idaho, which did so last year, right when COVID hit. So in March of 2020, Idaho was the first to pass that bill. That bill is now now other states have since passed these measures. So Mississippi passed one recently. Um, There's one, you know, kind of working its way in Florida. um, And there was on the, the Idaho bill was subject to legal challenge and was in the ninth being argued in the ninth circuit just a couple of days ago. So Okay, so this is sort of the background of what these are. And I, I guess we can we can sort of delve into the bathroom laws, which even when those were first starting, and I, speaking personally, I was still somewhat more conservative on social issues during this was a few years ago now. Even then, I thought, 
why are we talking about bathrooms? Like it, it, it just seems so absurd to me at the time. And the arguments that were being put that this is going to allow perverts to go into bed. And it's like, no, if someone does something bad in a bathroom, they're going to get in trouble for it. But I remember thinking, first of all, who, who, who cares other than the person who wants to use that bathroom, who else would have a stake or a reason in deciding whether or not that person could use a bathroom. And then the other thing was, how in the hell are you going to enforce this thing? Like, how are you going to say everyone, you got to, I mean, in order to prevent perverts, we're going to have to have people standing guard checking everyone's genitals when they walk in to the, the, that will definitely stop, you know, any kind of potential for sexual abuses to have everyone have to show their stuff to, uh, you know, someone that's been appointed at every single public bathroom. Was there, uh, just before we get into some of this, I guess, second generation stuff, was there any proposed enforcement mechanism for that? Like, how did they say they were even going to make people do this? Well, I know North Carolina, right, which is where this, you know, a lot of the controversy erupted, right? right. Was, you know, I think that they actually, there was going to be, it, it, I, I can't remember the actual wording of the bill, but I seem to recall it saying something to the effect that any person could challenge <laughs> Right. It was kind of giving very broad authority to any citizen to challenge the sex of the person who's in the bathroom. But wow. That language. So what happens with these bills is that like they really don't change all that much. It's just the language of the bills kind of stays the same. It's the context right. to which they are applied. That's that's different. Right. So right. the language of those bathroom bills has kind of migrated into the language of the sports bills. So the Idaho trans sports bill, which again prohibits trans girls from competing on the team of their, you know, on female sports teams in the state of Idaho at any level, uh, allows anybody to challenge the sex designation of any girl, right? So, so if a, if a parent, sees a girl on the soccer field and doesn't believe she's a girl, that parent can challenge, right? The the eligibility of that girl to be on the soccer field with other girls and force the child to undergo a health test. So in the Idaho litigation, you know, given those sort of very broad enforcement measures, yeah, folks that are challenging the law is a trans female student as well as um, a cisgender, right? A girl who's not trans who says, right. look, I look a little bit more masculine. I have a little bit more muscle. I don't wear dresses. I wear pants a lot. I'm worried that somebody's going to challenge my sex and subject me to a health exam. Right. So, so, so the bathroom bills have those kinds of similar enforcement measures. And I think that's probably why they were, you know, people just found them pretty distasteful. Well, I mean, and I would find it distasteful in this application as well. I mean, whatever you think about, you know, whether or not uh, trans girls should be able to uh, compete in women's sports, regardless of your opinion on that, imagine the powerful bullying tool that you are giving to people to be able to challenge the sex of anyone that's competing in sports. You know, you've got kids that already have image issues, self-esteem issues and everything else. And now they have uh, adults saying, I want you to have to go to a doctor to prove that you are what you say you are. That I mean, that that is insane to me. You've actually talked about this, how even putting aside the the, the moral or or ethical arguments uh, for or against these these types of things uh, and, and a 
in a similar fashion with the Jim Crow laws, with the with the discrimination laws that happened uh, after the the uh, Reconstruction, after slavery ended, uh, and even before when slavery was still happening, that it was based on this sort of nebulous concept of race, and that they wanted to pretend that it was something that had a very strict definition, and yet we saw this massive uh, difference from state to state in what even uh, delineated race. So long before we got into the moral argument of whether it was wrong or right to uh, you know segregate or discriminate based on race, it was actually being challenged in the courts on the basis of how do you even measure such a thing and and judge whether it's being uh, um, used correctly and enforced correctly. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to uh, what we're talking about now? Yeah, sure. So I've I, so one of my sort of ongoing interests in my scholarship is the way in which biology is often used by the state as a reason to regulate and as a reason to discriminate, right? So take the most obvious example, sex discrimination, right? Sex discrimination for the 14th Amendment is, um, you know, one of the reconstruction amendments to our constitution. It was passed in 1868. It's the amendment that is a source of what we think of today as unenumerated fundamental rights. It's a source of kind of equality doctrine. And for the first hundred years of the equal of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court made clear that it didn't apply to women, right, nor to men by implication, um, because the argument went that men and women were not similarly situated. They were because they were, you know, they were um, they were biologically different. And they were biologically different enough to make it okay for the state to discriminate against women in all sorts of ways, right? So so there was that, right, before, um, or I mean, the Supreme Court case um, that sort of solidified separate but equal, um, which it was a case called Plessy v. Ferguson, which was decided in 1896. And in Plessy v. Ferguson, the court was considering whether or not Louisiana's separate but equal law on railway cars, right, where white people had to sit here and e- everyone else had to sit over here. Right. It It wasn't a granular understanding of race, right? There were only two races, white and everybody else. Uh, That law was Plessy, Plessy, uh, Homer Plessy challenged the law on equal protection grounds and the court upheld it on the basis of biology and said, look, there are physical differences between the, between the races that are kind of biologically fixed. All this law is doing is tracking those inherent essential biological differences. So, and then in the 20th century, right, biology was a reason to criminalize consensual sexual conduct between same-sex individuals until 2003. Biology was the reason not to allow same-sex couples to marry until 2015. Now we're seeing biology in the context of the trans rights, right? So I became interested, you know, in the the context of Jim Crow, there were were a lot of similarities, you know, between what's going on today with, I mean, other than the obvious difference, right, that one relates to discrimination on the basis of sex and transgender status and the other relates discrimination on the basis of race, right? So there's one difference, right? But other than that, there are a lot of interesting similarities. For instance, right, back when Jim Crow was kind of at the heyday of Jim Crow, the late 19th, early 20th centuries, there were no DNA tests, right? There's no kind of litmus test for race. So your race was determined by public officials based on what you look like, right? So the shade of your skin, which we know is not a an indicator of race, right? But that became an indicator of race, what your hair looked like, your body type, your body shape. So uh, sort of state officials say, 
you know, interracial marriage was a crime. Right. If this, you go down to the clerk of court, you apply for your marriage license, that clerk has the discretion to determine whether you get the marriage license. If that person thinks that you're of different races, depending on what you look like. Right. Right. So what's really fascinating to me is that the same thing now is happening in the context of trans rights. So let me just give you a kind of an example. Right. Alabama, a district court, a federal district court in Alabama a few months ago in a case called Corbett v. Taylor sort of. Knocked me off my feet. Um, you know, maybe it's my bias. I thought Alabama is probably not going to be that sensitive to trans rights. I was wrong. So there, um, so Alabama requires individuals to have gender reassignment surgery to change their driver's license and to change their birth certificate. But it never specifies what gender reassignment is. Right. And actually, I'm not even sure if it says surgery. I think it's a gender reassignment. But gender reassignment exists on a very broad spectrum. Right. 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 So so what was happening in Alabama is I go and apply. So let's say I'm trans and I go apply for my mar- uh, my driver's license. The official and I get a doctor's letter that says I am under I am seeing a physician and undergoing medical medical treatment for gender reassignment, whatever that means. That might just be psychological treatment. Right, right, right. Affirmation. Yeah. Yeah. It could be intrusive medical interventions. Right. But what was happening there is that the, the, the you know, the person in charge of giving you a DM, a change of your on your driver's license was kind of making that assessment for him or herself, right? right? Like, do I think you went, tell me what you had done and I'll make a decision as to whether or not I think you went far enough, right? So did you, if you, did you have a mastectomy or did you get breast augmentation or whatever? The, D, and, the DMV worker is asking you this. Yeah. Yes. So ultimately, <laughs> right, your sex, whether you like it or not, is, is being decided by the DMV clerk. Right. So goes to a judge and the judge throws, he throws up his hands and he says, look, and I quote, there's no rhyme or reason at all on this because what he did was he looked at all of the records throughout Alabama. And what one official said, by the way, I forgot to mention earlier, this uh, episode is also brought to you by Jack Casey's books, uh, which are the thing just came. I'll find them. Hold on. I'll be right back was enough to be a woman or enough to be a man. Another official said it wasn't enough. Right. So he's, he's no right or reason at all in Alabama with respect to the question of what makes a woman or what makes a man. Right. It's just it's 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 too arbitrary. It's too subjective. Right. So that reminded me a lot of the Jim Crow stuff. Right. Where all of this race was in the eye of the beholder. And that's so this, yeah, no, it's a serious problem. Putting aside again the moral and ethical implications, just the enforcement and and the fact that you know if if I were a let's say I was a, a trans woman and I, I go in and I say uh, I am a I identify as a woman, uh, but I look like this, like I literally just walk in and I legitimately I'm not pranking, I legitimately uh, uh, feel like a, a woman and am, and am going through gender reassignment in affirmation and. And, and, you know, through, you know, uh, consultation about uh, future uh, treatments and things like that. But as of right now, I'm still presenting this way. Um, and uh, I go in and, and one DMV worker says, 
no, you're you're a man. Uh, you have more facial hair than me. You're a man. And then the, the, the next day I go back and I just walk out. And then the next day I go back and the person who is much more understanding and accepting says, OK, well, if you say that you're a, a woman and, and and you've shown me the documentation that you're you know getting this treatment, then you're now a woman. This is a major problem of enforcement. Um, and, and even before we get into those types of things. So I, before we get into I want to do a little bit of kind of devil's advocate stuff and, and also talk about some of the concerns I have. Um, what does this look like? Um, so, for example, we've talked a lot about um, the sports stuff and the um, and and then things like the you know being able to even change your your sex in your or gender in your in your documentation. Let's talk a little bit about some of these bills that are targeting uh, gender. And I keep forgetting what was because I know I forget if it was reassignment or affirmation, whatever the the term is that is as more seems more acceptable now. But the, the gender therapies that are going for uh, people that are under the age of of eighteen, can you delve a little bit into what those are? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, so there. Are- so the bills are targeting, I'll tell you what, so uh, what the bills make criminal, right? They make... Okay, I'm back. This episode is also brought to you by the amazing books of Jack Casey, including The Royal Green, Silver Throned, and coming this summer, Crowned by Gold, which if we sell, if a thousand of you buy a copy of these books, he will rename it Crowned by Mud. And change the storyline so that that title makes sense. Jack Casey, Crown by Gold. Uh, if you want to purchase these books, you're probably thinking, well, how do I purchase them? Go to theroyalgreen.com and let them know that you bought it because of watching this on My Fellow Americans or The Muddy Waters of Freedom or The Writer's Block. And again, he will change the title to Crowned by Mud. And that will be a victory for all of us. Thank you. It, it criminal for a healthcare professional, or in the case of Texas, which you know it, its bill is moving forward and hasn't yet become a law. Texas makes it criminal for a parent to provide these medical interventions. So it goes even or healthcare professionals goes goes even you know much farther. But okay. In terms of what they're preventing, right? So these medical bills are preventing either healthcare professionals or parents from um, changing what they call endogenous hormone profiles. And so in your endogenous hormone profiles are the hormones, hormones that you would have absent any kind of medical intervention. So you're naturally, naturally producing testosterone, naturally right. producing estrogen. Right. So the bills, one of the things the bills make a crime is to give um, hormone, give hormones, right, to trans youth, however that is defined in the bill, right? Usually somebody right. 15 years old, right? So giving a child testosterone or giving a child estrogen. Right. So that's one of the things they do. The second thing that they prevent are what's known as puberty blockers. So these are hormones or drugs that are even they're given much earlier, right? They're usually given right when a child is about to enter puberty. So let's say age nine, maybe 10. And what puberty blockers do is block the production of testosterone and or, or, or estrogen. 
right? So that child, let's say it's a trans boy who doesn't want to get breasts. Right. Or it's a trans boy who wants to delay having a period um, because, you know, having, you know, menstruating would be very traumatic, as it would be for any boy. Um, So the puberty blocker would prevent the formation of breasts. It would prevent the onset of a period until the blockers were no longer taken, right? So you can't be on hormone blockers forever. You can be on them safely for, you know, up to, I don't know exactly how many years, but four or five years. Right, right. So what the hormone blockers are doing, they're just kind of pausing, right? They're giving a pause so the child doesn't, you know, um, sort of undergo changing sex characteristics that come with puberty. Right. They're not given hormones. They're not given testosterone. They're not given estrogen. That's something that comes later in a child's life, usually maybe 17 or 18 years old. Right. So the puberty blockers are one thing. The actual hormones are a different thing. And then the bills also make it a crime to um, change the sex organs of a minor. Right. They never define what a sex organ is. But then they go on to list what medical procedures are prohibited, including, um, among other things, a mastectomy. Okay. Right. So, so by preventing, you know, um, someone who was assigned uh, female at birth from getting a mastectomy when she's seventeen, right? The bill is implicitly defining breasts as a sex organ. Or the absence of breasts, I guess, as a sex organ, right? So they don't they don't really you know define with any clarity what a sex organ is, but they do by implication by prohibiting certain procedures on certain organs like breasts, among other things. Now, just and maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying. I mean, there are times when outside of uh, you know gender affirmation reassignment whatever that uh that hormone therapy would be be needed for minors is this explicitly banning those things as well like situations where there are kids that have uh, or or hormone blockers where there are kids who have like a hormone deficiency or a hormone uh, overactive uh, thyroid or an overactive you know hormone situation is it also right. no. That? no 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 there's they're not even included in the scope okay. of the bill at all so they're just right so okay that's, so one of the arguments then is that this bill, if, if they really want to, if the concern is that it's harmful to give kids hormones. Right. Or if it's harmful to block the production of hormones, either one mm-hmm. or both. Right. If that's the argument, then clearly the bill is woefully underinclusive. Because it's not capturing a whole host of other situations where hormones are either given affirmatively or blocked in children right. who are who, who are not characterized as trans minors, right? So that's an under-inclusivity problem. Which means that they're not arguing that these things are inherently dangerous per se. They're arguing that they don't think that they should be used for this specific thing, which is a medical decision to be made by doctors and parents, not by by lawmakers. Right. And one more thing that's really interesting about the bills is that they also have an exception for children who qualifies intersex, right? So, 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 so individuals who have sex care, who are born with 
the sex characteristics of both sexes, right? right. So they the XY, but exhibit, you know, male, male sex characteristics or, or XX, sorry, or female sex characteristics. And maybe XX, but exhibit male sex characteristics. In those situations, <laughs> folks are exempted, right? So though if a parent is making the decision on behalf of the intersex child to bring their sex in conformity, to bring their hormones, to bring their sex characteristics into conformity with, with the desired sex of the parent, that the parent and the doctor want for that child, then medical interventions on that child is okay, right? Because in that case, right, it's like, you know, the law doesn't like ambiguity. Right. It specifically says in this set of children, we're talking about children with ambiguous sex characteristics. Well, if the whole point of the law is to make things clear, not ambiguous, then it makes sense, right? But it doesn't make sense because it's an under-inclusive problem. If it's harmful, if it's harmful for kids who, you know, are expressing gender identity questions, then it's harmful for everybody. Yeah. Which, which is a form of ambiguity. If you uh, in here believe that you're a girl and are you know presenting as a, a man or, or a biological male or assigned male at birth or, or whatever, that's an ambiguity there. And you one would think that that would fall. I mean, I would think a major challenge would be what are we calling intersex and what are we calling a sexual characteristic like that? This yeah. just sounds like if if even if you think this is a good idea or that you think this is necessary, just the ability to enforce it seems like it's pie. Am I missing something here? It seems like this is just going to be litigated into the ground. No, it's fascinating. I mean, so as far as the intersex, right? So like surgeries, mandatory surgeries on intersex, usually it's done when the, when the child's an infant, right? So like 15 months, two years of age, right? Right. To sort of, to kind of, you know, sort of get rid of the ambiguity. Right. Right. Through surgical interventions. Well, what happens a lot is those kids grow up and, right, so maybe the child is born with a phallus, but is, you know, it otherwise is chromosomally XX, right? So they grow up feeling, right, um, sorry, they might, let me try to think, I'm trying to think. They, they might be XY, Right. right. But but have like a, you know, a phallus that isn't robust enough right? so to a kind of genetic, a surgical intervention. And then the child. Right. So, I mean, those have oh, those God. not been I mean, they're controversial within the intersex community. Yeah. Well, you know, to the extent that those things have been subject to a legal challenge, they've been unsuccessful. I am trying to picture a DMV worker deciding whether or not someone's penis is robust enough. Like this is I mean, this is where we are. Like, Courtney, this is what we're talking about here, because at some point this actually has to rubber has to meet the road and this has to be enforced in some tangible way or else it's yeah. just words on a sheet of paper. So it. I'd just like to say how uncomfortable I was talking to a law professor about robust penises. Thank you.
you literally are looking at people with zero medical qualification whatsoever, police officers, uh, 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 DMV workers, CPS work, people that really don't have any of this background who are now saying, mm, I've seen I've seen more, more robust one. I've seen better ones than that. So you're you're a woman like I mean, this is what we're doing. Right. Well, that's why I said in the, in the op-ed piece that I did for Slate, like, you know, so like right. Florida has one of these bills, these anti-trans medical bills, right? That's kind of percolating through the legislature right now, right? And it includes breasts as a definition of sex, right? Well, breasts are not a definition of sex for anybody else in Florida, right? right? So you walked in, the, you walk on the beach in Florida, you might see individual men with what might look like, right, a female breast, and no one's going to hold that guy off. Right. But you got to go to Office of Vital Statistics and change your birth certificate right now. <laughs> right? So, like, breasts are not a marker of sex for anybody else but trans. Right, right. So, I mean, part of, I think, what's going on with these bills, honestly, is, is like, I think – I think there's this, I think they signal a larger anxiety about eroding the difference between men and women. Yes, that's 100% what it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think trans youth are the unfortunate target of that larger, much larger anxiety. Yeah. And I think, you know, last year in a kind of landmark Supreme Court decision, um, Bostock v. Clayton County, the Supreme Court had to determine whether or not an employer could fire you if you were gay or could an employer fire you if you were trans. Right. right. Well, federal employment law prohibits sex discrimination, but it doesn't prohibit sexual orientation discrimination, nor does it prohibit trans discrimination. Right. But the Supreme Court, in a surprising ruling for a lot of people, myself included, said, look, trans identity and sexual orientation identity are a subset of sex. And what you saw, right, so when you discriminate against somebody because they're trans, that is sex discrimination. And when you dis- discriminate against somebody because of their, they're gay or lesbian or whatever, that is sex discrimination, right? So, like, sex is an integral part of that discrimination. I think what you saw after that was like, whoa, what's going to happen now, right? What Are, are, are all sex-segregated spaces going to be opened up? Yeah. Right? I think that was kind of – that's – you know, I'm very interested in slippery slopes. That's kind of what got me into incest. Because Justice Scalia, Justice Scalia, in the decision, it was called Lawrence v. Texas. And in Lawrence v. Texas, the court said, look, you can't criminalize two men for engaging in consensual sexual conduct in the privacy of their home. Otherwise, no one right. Right. And Justice Scalia, you know, the late Justice Scalia fuming in his dissent says, what about incest? Right. You allow sodomy between same sex partners. You're going to have to allow incest. Right. That's the bottom of the slippery slope. Right. So. So I think. Right. You know, I think in this context, trans youth is like the thing at the top desegregation of sex segregated spaces in American life is at the bottom. I think that's what's really driving the anxiety, right? Like our entire world is organized according to male and female. Right. Right. It just is. And you know what? The Supreme Court has said that's okay. You know, so I think... 
Well, I mean, you have entire languages that are gendered where there are things that, you know, I'm in the process of learning Spanish very slowly. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm doing this and I'm like, man, is a fork a man or a woman. I forget. And it's like, but it's everything is gendered in, especially in the Latin languages. And it is very much a structure that, you know, you are either a man or woman. You know, I grew up, boys have penises, girls have vaginas. And now there's this, this gray area in between and it's causing a lot of anxiety with people. Um, and, but here's the thing, like you said, if that's the case, then inherently your trans identity is tied to sex. If it wasn't, people wouldn't care, or at least they wouldn't care in that respect. They wouldn't care in that context. It wouldn't mean anything to them. Right. Right. No, I agree. And, you know, so like, I've been also doing a lot of work. Forks are men, by the way, el tenedor, el tenedor, the fork, forks are men. On, of course, I go to my taboos. I've been doing a lot of work on breast regulation and, and criminal breast regulation, by which I mean, right, laws that criminalize the public exposure of a female breast, right, not the public exposure of a male breast. So, here's an interesting story. There was a woman in Utah last year, okay, I think in Salt Lake City, and she's out in her garage putting up drywall with her husband. I think it was a summer, right? So it's obviously very hot. Yeah. Come inside. He had three kids from a prior marriage or a prior relationship. Her three stepkids. Okay. They come in. They're hot. They're sweaty. They're inside their home. He takes his sweatshirt off. She takes her sweatshirt off. And they jump in the shop. Well, the stepkids see her. They're older. I think they were, they were old. I, I don't know how, I can't remember how they were some age range, whatever. They see her and they tell their mom when they go back to the mom. That's like, hey, you know, dad's our stepmom, disrobe before you anyway. Please come knocking at her door. Right? She's charged with indecent exposure. She's charged with public nudity, despite the fact wow. in her home, right? So they're defining public to mean, you know, any any third party viewing, regardless of whether or not it's in the home or outside, right? So she's charged. She's charged in with with you know this public nudity offense. It carries with it. I can't remember what the penalty was, but I maybe like a couple years in jail, but 10 years having to be on a sex offender registry. Wow. Yeah. So she gets the ACLU and is like, I'm going to challenge this. This is sex discrimination, right? Because like, and it's a perfect example, right? Because her husband takes off his shirt. He wasn't charged. Yep. No one cared. I mean, it's like, the female nipple is like, oh, anyway, she was going to take it, but she got scared. She, she pled. I think they, they dropped the, you know, they said, if you plea, we'll get rid of the sex offender registration in the jail time or whatever. So she fled. So I'm really, I'm doing a lot of work on those laws. Right. And those are really interesting because they are alive and well in every single state in the United States. That's yeah. And it's it. So and I've I've heard of different like protests where uh, women will march and men will march, too, and they will all be topless, but they'll wear pasties with famous men's nipples printed on them. And then that, that way I they can know. say 
that's great. they can oh, say, this isn't my nipples. These are Morgan Freeman's nipples. It's perfectly that's fine. Awesome. And, and then and then it's it's OK, officer. And then meanwhile, you're looking from afar and it looks like, you know, you just looks like a nipple. It looks like this woman's breaking the law. But they also document that it's if anyone gets in trouble, it's the women and not the men. So it's, uh, you know, and uh, then now they've and now they've got trans women who are, are still often very masculine looking who are wearing them as well. So they're, they're, you know, bringing in all these different factors and they're like, who gets arrested? Who, who is being arbitrarily uh, discriminated against in all of this? Um, I'm going to have to change where my, my, uh, my um, headsets, headphones just died. So I'm going to have to change it. Okay. That should be good. All right, cool. So um, you see how seamlessly I did that. I didn't, I didn't let that phase me. I'm proud of myself. So can I just say something about that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's 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 great. Thank you. It, I didn't know that, that they were, were in the pasties of, <laughs> of famous male nipples. That's great. But so what's really interesting is that so the, the Chicago has one of these laws, right? And a woman was prosecuted under it. I don't know. She was at maybe the lake or whatever. And it, she challenged it, right? As sex discrimination. This is sex discrimination, right? right. And it goes to the Seventh Circuit, right? Which is the... Fe- she made me talk about robust penises. I made her say famous male nipples. I still feel like I got the worst out of federal court of appeals that covers Illinois, right? So this is like a big federal court. And this is in 2017, a case called Tagami. And they uphold it. And they say it's not sex discrimination because male breasts and female breasts are inherently biologically different, right? And they're different in all cases. Well, interestingly, that same year, the state of Illinois changed its requirement that trans people change their bodies, including their breasts, to change their sex, right? So there was a lot of trans activism around that issue, right? Because once, I mean, it's really intrusive to say, look, if you want to be a member of, if you want to be, change your legal sex, you either have to take your breasts off or get them. I mean, that's like, a, you know, and that's the least of it, right? There are other much more intrusive medical interventions, right? There was a lot of trans activism around that issue, and they managed to get the Illinois legislature to repeal its requirement that you change your body, including your breasts, change your legal sex. So do you see the tension between those two things, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So... You can't in the same breath say that breasts are an inherent biological difference between men and women and then say in the trans context. But you know what? Breasts are irrelevant. Yeah. Right? Keep your breasts. You can still change your sex. You're no less a man if you have breasts. Great. Right. So, I mean, I think, again, the trans stuff is really I mean, I think you're you know, there are always going to be some people who find that really deeply unnatural or whatever. But I think it's really anxiety producing in a world that likes to just have like male, female, yin, yang, you know, like just have it be clear. Well, and, and the thing is, yes, if everyone fit within that very easy box, then it would make the most sense. You just got men and women. And we always knew that there was this very, very small percentage of people who were intersex that were born uh, either with hermaphroditism or who were, uh, you know, had these different uh, ambiguities that were, were built in. But now we've got this, you know, not 
you know, it's it's a minority, but a, not a much larger minority than we originally thought of people that are gender non-binary, people that are, uh, you know, transgender and, and all of this. And it's for especially, you know, I try to picture someone who is in their 50s, 60s, 70s, something like that. Their whole life they've been told, you know, uh, boys have uh, penises, girls have vaginas. That's it. That's all that it is. And and then they're now being told there's these other things. And just there is I can imagine there being an anxiety uh, related to that. So I, I do I will say I empathize. Not, I'm not empathizing with the people who are, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, being outright bigoted towards people, whatever you think about someone, if you find yourself, you know, wishing violence against someone for expressing who they are, then even if you may or may not have a valid disagreement with them, there's a better way to do that. So I'm certainly not defending that. I I do want to give a couple of, and I guess I'll call it devil's advocate, although at least for a couple of them, I have some concern about it and, and I want to make sure I'm fully understanding it. We'll start with the, um, well, we've been talking most recently about the uh, about some of this uh, gender um, uh, gender reassignment, gender affirmation stuff. So I guess we can start there. Um, I'm not going to talk about every concern that's been expressed because some of them I don't think are, are terribly valid and, and are just downright just an expression of bigotry or just an expression of, well, where does it stop? How do we stop defining boy and girl? And that's just a that's a that's a, a, a societal anxiety there. That's not really so much related to that person. Um if there is a law that is saying outright that, you know, even with parental approval, that now the parent is a criminal, too, if they're trying to do this, I think that's absurd. I, As a libertarian, I think it's none of the government's business what is being decided by patients and their their guardians and doctors. There's, there's no reason for that whatsoever. If they, the doctor is far more qualified than the DMV worker or the politician than, you know, what should be done in that situation. Now, I know that at least some of these bills are explicitly stating that uh, and it may not be these ones, but I know that there are ones that are stating that uh, it can only be done or have been uh, proposed that it can only be done with parental approval. And now I know the argument against that, that, you know, there are some parents who are bigoted or are anti-trans who don't get it and who are reflexively saying, uh, no, I don't want my child to have these puberty blockers or this um, um, or this hormone therapy. And let's be clear. Uh, especially for young children, um, prepubescent children, um, uh, intrusive surgical stuff is pretty much never on the table. This is stuff that's post-puberty that that even really gets into it. We're, t- we're talking gender blockers and, and hormone therapy for the most part, as well as, um, uh, you know, um, psychological therapy and things like that, affirmation and that kind of care. Um, in the situation where the parent is not giving approval. Here is my concern with requiring that, uh, with not having something that protects the parents' rights here. I understand the reason why someone would say that a child should be able to get this uh, gender assignment therapy, even if the parent doesn't consent. My concern is, and we were talking about slippery slopes, if we set a precedent that a parent uh, cannot uh, be, does not have to be consulted when it comes to uh, medical concerns, health concerns, and this is a serious medical concern, then that sets the stage for saying that if the state and a doctor believe that something is okay, then the parent should have no say in that. And that we're, we're basically saying that the, the parent as the guardian of the child, that their concerns are lesser than that of the of the state and, and the doctor, since the, at that point, the child isn't in a legal situation 
situation to be able to represent themselves or to be able to make decisions for themselves. It is basically the doctor uh, deciding on behalf. Obviously, the child has to consent. But I mean, again, slippery slopes. We talk a lot about children can't consent. That's why we say pedophilia is wrong. That's why we say that, uh, you know, children shouldn't be able to enter into contracts. So what we're basically saying is that this is a decision being made by the doctor and affirmed by the state and that the person who in any other situation, including in, in typically in medical situations, the parent isn't able to um, isn't able to be be able to give their their input and be able to say whether or not they approve of it. Putting aside all of the potential slippery slopes, even in just medical, what that could lead to with potential abuse of children by, you know, predatory doctors who are just trying to, you know, jack up how much they're char- how much money money they're making from possibly unnecessary things that have nothing to do with gender reassignment. What is your take on that concern that not allowing the parent to be the final arbiter in this situation uh, could lead to those slippery slopes? And, And if so, what protections could there be against that? Right. I mean, so I guess, right, this issue has come up you know, the other contexts that it's come up are usually, right, medical context, context where urgent medical care is needed usually, right, to save a child's life, right, whether it's a blood transfusion or it's chemotherapy in the case of cancer, right, there have been cases where parents don't believe in chemotherapy, either for moral reasons or for religious reasons, right, and then doctor testify that the the kid needs it in order to save his or her life, and in those, right, so it's a balance, as you say, it's a balancing of interest, right? Right, right. Parents' constitutional rights, whether they're under the 14th Amendment or under the, you know, the First Amendment free exercise, you know, religious liberty freedoms are really, really robust. And they've only really become more robust, not less robust over time. Right. So, you know, there was a kind of landmark case in 2000 called Troxel, where the court like really definitively said that parents have these really fundamental liberty interests to make decisions with respect to their children, even independent of any other interest. So in previous parental autonomy cases, the court said, well, parents have a fundamental right, but they also have religious rights. Right. So they kind of bundled parental autonomy and religious autonomy together, right? Or parents have fundamental rights and they also have free speech rights, so they bundle these together. But in this case, the one, the Troxel case that I'm thinking of, it was the first time that a parent asserted a fundamental liberty interest independent of any other constitutionally right. Right, right. And the court was like, yeah, you got it. That's a really, right... So parents, so that's the first thing to keep in mind. The parents really have robust liberty rights to make decisions, right? On the other side of the scale, right? So then the question becomes, when can those decisions be trumped, right? Well, harm, right? Like harm is, right? Clearly, if a parent's decision is going to harm the child physically, right? The state's going to be able to intervene. Right. So there are those cases dealing with chemotherapy where the court is, you know, courts have like temporarily placed a child, a minor under a guardian of litem so that the child could receive chemotherapy. Right. Because that was necessary in order to save the child's life. Right. Right. So I guess in these cases with these trans kids, I'd have to like. I really do think they are very case by case specific. I think it's very hard to make broad generalizations. I mean, here's the thing too. Every trans kid is different. 
right? So some are going to be experiencing extreme gender dysphoria, right? Such that if they don't get the interventions that they need or that they want, right? Um, suicidal ideation or, su- you know, attempted suicide could result, right? So like, and then there are trans kids who don't fall on that extreme side. So I do think that there are just like, I just think that in this particular area, making a broad generalization with respect to whether or not a state can ever trump a parental autonomy in this area is hard to do. I mean, I do think, I agree with you. I agree with you that, you know, the slippery slope, I see it, right? I do do think, right, a possible guard, you know, some guardrails would be, you know, having a lot of process, right? Like, I would think... And or and I'd have to get I'd have to see some of these laws to see what exactly you know on a more granular level. Right, right, right. Like I would think that you know you know there would have to be multiple doctors involved. There would have to be social workers involved, right? Like there would have to be lots of assessments involved before you know making the determination as to whether or not the parental autonomy, this is a case where parental autonomy can be overcome. And I would think there need to be a level of urgency as well, because if it's not, we need to do this to save someone's life in the immediate, you know, now or in the immediate future, then even with all of those protections, it ultimately just becomes, does the doctor think this is medically necessary, which essentially, yes, it would take a whole process, but essentially you've, uh, uh, you know, they call it medical kidnapping in the, in the parental rights world that you've created this system whereby if they go through the legal process of doing so at any level of urgency or lack thereof, if the doctors say your kid needs this and you say, well, I think, you know, I'd like to get a second opinion or I'd like to wait and see, then, you know, they're going to immediately move to the process of going through that. If for no other reason, then that's what's going to protect them from malpractice insurance, right? Because if they go through that whole process, right, and they go through the whole process and it's and it turns out that it wasn't the right thing to do, their malpractice insurance is, is almost assuredly going to protect them because they went through the whole process to do so. Whereas if they side with the parent and, and hold off, uh, even though there is this process in place for them to challenge the parent's rights, they're almost surely going to be uh, sued if it goes wrong by, by waiting and seeing. So it is, I mean, it is a mess. And I do think at the very least, even outside of the the specific application when it comes to uh, gender reassignment or gender affirmation, that that it would have to uh, it would have there would have to be a, a level of making sure that the uh, the parent's ability to provide input and that there has to be some level of urgency before you're pulling this you know pull, take it out of the parent's hands trigger. Um, one just one quick thing about sure, that. Sure. Say this, like even for kids who are who are you know at the more dysphoric end of the scale, right? So like kids for whom you know these kinds of medical interventions are going to be you know seen as more necessary, whether right. life threatening or not, you know whatever, but just like extremely urgent, right? Even then, no doctor immediately goes to that, right? So right. like there right. are lots of different steps and hoops that you have to jump through before it even gets to that point, right? So I would think, you know, and that's a, that, that's a, a case where the, the child is very sure, but, I, you know, I, I get what you're saying, right? Yeah. Children, 
can't make decisions, you know, if they can't really make decisions, they can't make those kinds of decisions for themselves. So yeah, I, there, there, there does need to be, you know, um, you know, a, a number of, like I said, guardrails in place. Yeah, I, I have seen people who are advocates in, in favor of, of allowing this who have said things like, well, as long as we're getting the child's consent. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You would never use that in so many different applications, right? And especially, especially stuff related to sex, typically. There is no way you would say it's okay if the child consents. I mean, the, one of the most unifying things in, in worldwide political discourse is that it's hard to find a punishment harsh enough for someone who rapes a child, right? So, uh, you know, and, and it, the, well, what if the child consents? That is not uh, in, in any kind of, uh, you know, uh, mainstream. I mean, there are certainly fringes that say that most of them are people that are attracted to children there's very few people outside of those who are actually dealing with pedophilia that are that are arguing that so we wouldn't we wouldn't use that so um and and there's obviously the fact that for example uh when it comes to some of these puberty blockers they are technically being used off label um to, for these types of things and and you know the potential for side effects and things like that but at the end of the day that's a medical question that's not a legal question that needs to be decided in my opinion at least the vast majority of the time not just by doctors but also by with the, with the parental input, possibly barring uh, the the most um, extreme of cases. So um, yeah. let's do this when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the the sports bills. The yeah. argument, the broad argument, is that um, because men typically are. Uh, or biological men, as they would call it, uh, are, are typically have greater bone density, greater, um, you know, muscle density, uh, even putting aside the hormonal stuff that I mean, we look that, you know, if you took the uh, these all stars of the NBA and the all stars of the WNBA, or if you took the all stars of the the male soccer, the the, the male World Cup so- soccer team and the female World Cup soccer team, it, it, it wouldn't be close, right? So that that's the argument is that even if you are using and I do know that even even with a uh, a trans woman that has or a trans girl that is using uh, hormone replacement therapy. On, oddly enough, this is an argument for puberty blockers. Uh, but but putting but putting that aside, um, uh, putting that aside, um, if, uh, if there is a damned if you do, damned if you don't aspect to a lot of this, so we definitely yes. have to acknowledge that. But. Um, Assuming that there wasn't that, and assuming you're now talking about, let's say, a 15, 16 year old trans girl who up until then has been going through puberty, even with uh, either puberty blockers or, or, or hormone therapy in there, and even if they regulate the blood levels of the hormones to be the same as a as a, a cisgender girl of that age, there is still the the changes to muscle density and and, and bone density that have happened up until that point uh, that would potentially give an unfair advantage. Putting aside all of those arguments, um, and you can you can get into those arguments if you'd like to. As a libertarian, it looks to me like is it possible that maybe this is something that should be decided at the as you would put it the granular level, being decided by individual leagues and teams and 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 groups to be able to decide what their standards are, and then the parents can decide whether they want to be a part of that. Uh, the parents and the and the kids can decide whether they want to be a part of that or whether they want to create their own that goes whatever the opposite of of what this consensus was. Whether it's you know for allowing trans girls and trans youth to to play in the in their gender of choice or against it, um, which 
would it's that because and the reason I ask this is right now I'm seeing a lot of people giving hot takes both for and against the these transports bills, despite the fact that they have absolutely no stake in it whatsoever. They don't have kids in sports. They themselves aren't in the sports. They may not even know someone who is in these kids sports. And yet because this is kind of being democratized because it's a public debate, it's being decided largely by people who don't really know anything about it. And at best, they watch a, 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 a you know an episode like this, or they watch a YouTube video that really is they're just watching to confirm whatever bias they have, and then they go and give their very uneducated, top of the peak of the Dunning Kruger scale uh, take on this uh, on this subject. Is it possible that the best way to handle this um, is? through just allowing the, the actual stakeholders in this to decide it? And and if you want to also address, you know, the argument about why they should have it in the first place, you're, you're welcome to as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, my most, the most, my first impression to that is that that's, I don't think that's going to work, right? Okay. Letting the individual stakeholders, stakeholders make that decision because all of those individual stakeholders, depending on the context, are bound by anti-discrimination laws, right? So there are state anti-discrimination laws, right? So like the case where this first came up was in Connecticut, um, which is where I am right now. It was a case called SOUL, S-O-U-L-E. This was the first trans girl sports case. And it kind of gave rise to these anti-trans sports bills that we're seeing today. And the case was just dismissed by a federal district court last week on the grounds. He he said it was moot because the trans athlete, female athlete in that case had graduated from high school and she was in college and there wasn't any other trans. I think the court was probably just kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit. Right, right, right. right. No immediate legal issue because there is no trans athlete who wants inclusion on the sports teams of girls now. So I can just kind of say the issue is moving. So it's like it's a it's a standing issue. Right, right, right. It's a standing issue. Right. Like I'm not going to decide. So but, you know, the thing is, right. So like Connecticut has an anti-discrimination law that says, you know, places of public accommodation, including sports teams like little league teams can't discriminate on the basis of sex. Right. Then, of course, you have that under Title IX. Right. So that's a federal law that says any educational institution that receives federal funding, which is basically all public schools, right, um, they can't discriminate on the basis of sex either, okay? Now, now that after the Supreme Court trans decision that I talked about earlier, the employment discrimination decision, the court, the court has you know, made clear that trans discrimination is sex discrimination, right? So I don't think you can leave it to the stakeholders because all of these stakeholders are bound by anti-discrimination laws that now either on their face or through judicial interpretation apply to trans kids, right? Like that's a form, excluding them as a form of sex discrimination. So I don't think that that's going to be I don't think that's going to be possible. I mean, I do think it's going to kind of emerge regardless, right? Because what's going to happen if you have, you know, some tennis teams in one town permitting trans girls to compete, but other tennis teams not allowing it, right? You're just going to have kind of, I guess my concern is that there's going to be so much differential, you know, so many different approaches you know, it kind of, you know, gets us back to, you know, before same-sex marriage was nationally recognized. You know, you had some states recognizing, other states not. Like, 
you know, you just get too many. I mean, I guess, you know, like that, I guess one of the arguments for that is, you know, you know, we, you know, sometimes we like that, you know, let, let it develop on the ground. Right. We allow courts to intervene, but I don't think courts have any choice but to intervene now. Now that it's pretty clear trans discrimination is sex discrimination, it's sex discrimination, right? So they're going to have to, they're going to be individual lawsuits. Either way, they're going to be individual lawsuits. Oh, there's going to be law. I'm, I don't I don't foresee any scenario in which there won't be large numbers of lawsuits, whichever way this goes, or even if in my libertarian utopia where they just let individual stakeholders make these kinds of decisions together. Um, and at least for right now, I mean, the vast majority of these sports leagues are with publicly funded dollars. So this is not a question of private interests deciding what they want to do with stakeholders. We all become stakeholders by virtue of of the fact that, you know, we're being, as we put it, robbed to pay for it. Um, um, and uh, and so this is where the whole libertarian argument about why we should maybe not be democratizing these types of things and and making them uh, taxpayer funded in the first place. But without going down that whole uh, 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 slippery slope, um, just sticking to this, here's sort of a, a and, and I didn't really think of this until we were we were talking. If we are saying that you can't allow sex discrimination, um, then what is the divider or what is the the block that stops, for example, cisgen men from saying, you know what? I think I'd rather participate in the in the female league or for uh, it eventually to be potentially decided that even segregating by sex is something we shouldn't even be doing or allowing even private uh, 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 leagues and private sports and private groups to do, meaning that you wouldn't have an NBA or a WNBA. And, and if that did happen, how do you end up in a situation where you don't just have uh, men uh, and or trans potentially trans women uh, just dominating uh, all forms of sports, even including adult, you know, private entertainment sports like baseball and football and, and, and the NBA and things like that. Right. I mean, I guess like my first answer would be I like that's a slippery slope concern that I just don't see happening. Like okay. I just don't see cisgender men kind of right. Like the, the fear of sort of overtaking female sports teams. That is that's a, that's a hard you know, scenario for me to envision, right? But, but, but you're right that sex discrimination in those and in other contexts, even though sex is a protected characteristic under the constitution, and even though hundreds of thousands of laws, state, federal, whatever, say that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, it turns out you can discriminate on the basis of sex when it relates to biology. Right. So that's what distinguishes, at least in our country, right, race discrimination from sex discrimination. Right, right. It it used to be that biology was a reason to discriminate on the basis of race. No longer. Right. So like you could never say, like, you know, the races are biologically distinguishable. Therefore, it's okay for the state to treat them differently. That'll never cut it. But it is okay in the context of sex. Right. So, you know. Sex, so Title IX, right? The federal yep. law talking about yeah. this is institutional institutions receive federal funding, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, but it turns out you can, right? You can in locker rooms, you can on sports teams, you nope. can in living spaces and all of this stuff, right? So it's kind of like that that mandate, not it's not mandated segregation, but that that sort of permitted segregation has been largely uncontroversial. People don't challenge it. 
I've never seen, okay, I, I can think of before the whole trans stuff, I can think of one case was in a Clark case in 1982 and, and it was in the Ninth Circuit where you're right. And I can't remember the facts. I should have looked at them, but like a boy, a cisgender boy yep. wanted to be, I think on the system, the girls volleyball team. And I don't know why. I can't remember why. Maybe it was there was no male volleyball team. I can't remember. Right. And in that context, you know, the court said, look, sex segregation in sports is permissible because of biological difference. Other than that, I can't think of a case, right? Like no one challenges this stuff, right? There's not one cisgender boy nor one cisgender girl who said, I want to use the male or female locker room. Like it just hasn't come up, right? It's been so uncontroversial ever since these laws were put into place. So I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine that trans stuff is going to open the floodgates to something that's never been an issue. Yeah, I, I, I certainly. So I, I'm, I guess I'm. I, I agree with you that I, I don't necessarily see a, a bunch of frat boys saying, "Yeah, we want to go be on the the girls uh, lacrosse team or whatever." But I, I could potentially, and and yes, it's not being argued now. But uh, the stuff we're talking about now wasn't being argued, let's say, twenty, thirty years ago either. So yeah. things can change over time, uh, and especially as there is increasingly. Uh, 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 I don't want to say ambiguity, but an increasingly uh, blurring of the concept of gender uh, and as it relates to sex. I could see, you know, a generation from now where people are saying, well, why do we even have uh, separation of uh, of the of the of the the sexes for sports? Why are we allowing that? Not just why are we having it, but why are we allowing that and not considering it discrimination as uh, proposed? And if the argument becomes, well, we need to protect women and they go, okay, but which women? And they go, well, the, the women that biologically need to be protected it could be i could see it becoming a a a difficult uh thing to challenge and this is where it gets sticky and again where i as a libertarian always fall back on allowed the stakeholders to make this decision and it may mean it may mean looking at and reforming uh discrimination laws that if it that this isn't unless there's a um, someone can be shown that they're being systemically uh um disenfranchised and discriminated against by someone in power that maybe we should allow a certain level Level of quote unquote discrimination or discernment from stakeholders. But again, we I, you yeah. promised an hour. We don't have 17 hours to talk about that. But um, Can I just say one more, one more. Sure, thing? sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So there was a Supreme Court case that was written. The majority opinion was written by Justice Ginsburg the year she became an associate justice, 1996. It's a case called United States versus Virginia, and it concerned the admissions policy of VMI, Virginia Military Institute, which is okay. in Lexington. Virginia. It's a public institution. It was discriminated on the basis of sex. Only men could go to VMI, right? And not a whole lot of women wanted to go there, but some did, right? Right. And um, VMI had a lot of reasons why it wanted to maintain its male-only admissions policy, but one of them was that they claimed that women were physically unable to satisfy the admissions criteria, right? right. Like whether it meant dropping down and giving 30 push-ups I don't know what it was, right? But it was kind of some physical test, right? And they were like, look, women can't satisfy the physical test. Well, it turned out the woman who brought the case could, right? Right. So she could drop down and get 50, whatever it was. Whatever it was, right, right. Whatever it was, right? So it goes to the Supreme Court and Justice Ginsburg says, look. because So they were trying to say it's biology, right? Like there are fundamental biological differences 
between men and women that make PMI inherently unsuitable for women. And Ginsburg is like, in a majority of the court, right? Bare majority, I think it was a five-point decision. Predictably, Scalia's in dissent, like, this is awful, right? But she says, look, biological difference, basically, she says, look, we can't deny that there are physical differences between the sexes. She says, like, we don't, there are physical differences between the races, but there are physical differences between the sexes, but they should be a cause for celebration, not denigration, right? And basically, the holding of that case, as I tell my students, is that, look, Biology, discrimination on the basis of biology is a sex stereotype, which is always illegal. Sex stereotypes in American law are always illegal. There's no right. amount of justification for it, right? But if it's biology, it's not a sex stereotype. But this case said biology can be a sex stereotype if there's at least one woman out there who can, who bucks the biological norm. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I always tell my students, it's about the law of the exceptional case. So try to find one biological difference. Of, I mean, maybe, like I talk about this with my students all the time. Can we think of a biological difference, right? That only women have, or that only men have. If we can think of one, then that's a valid basis for discriminating, right? Right, but, right, right. But if there's not one, then it becomes less permissible. It, you know, it, it, it goes over from the biology side, which is OK, to the stereotype side, which is not OK. Right. You know, like for me, that's the fascinating thing about sex discrimination. Right. When is a biology? When is a stereotype? Well, under this rule of one idea, I don't know. There are lots of things that, you know, that we might think are biological that violate that norm. Yeah. I mean, I mean Scalia knew this. Scalia knew this because he drops a footnote. It's almost like he didn't want to make it too obvious, but he drops a footnote and he says, on this logic, I'm not sure any sex segregation can persist. The one exception. Now, imagine it's the other way around. And in order for a uh, cisgender boys to be allowed in girls sports, they just have to have an exception of a cisgender boy who doesn't exceed a certain level of performance. They just have to pick some schmuck kid like me who got picked last for volleyball every single league. And I go, yeah, I can't. Yeah. How many pull ups can you do? Maybe four. And they go, see there, there you go. I know. A guy just made that your argument. I mean, it quite not your volleyball argument, but this guy wanted to work in the FBI, right? And in the FBI, they have different physical standards for men and women, right? Yeah. So I think men do have to drop down and do 30 push-ups. Women have to drop down and do 20. Something right, or like whatever. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This guy... But it was like he wanted a job in more an administrative capacity, yeah. right? But in order to even get that job in the FBI, you still have to go through the physical fitness training. You can't avoid that, right? This poor guy cannot do 30 push-ups in a minute or whatever it was. Like, he just couldn't do it. Like, he he got so close. Like, you know, he, he did it one last time. He got 29, but he didn't make it. He argued that that was sex discrimination, basically, on your logic, Right. He's like, look, that's wrong. Like if you're allowing women in who can only do 12 pushups or 20 pushups, why aren't you allowing me in for doing 29? It makes no sense. He lost. He lost. He lost. Yeah. He lost. Right. So but that didn't go to the Supreme Court. It was a Fourth Circuit decision. And they were like, yeah, but biological difference. 
But Plessy lost too. It can always change. This is this is where. And again, I'm I'm gonna do the I'm gonna do my my libertarian uh, agitprop moment here. I, this is where I think you've got some murky situations where there's not going to be a good standard that a one size fits all standard here that isn't going to end up resulting in something potentially disastrous, even if it takes a few generations to do it. And why I think we may need to be looking at how much quote unquote discrimination we're allowing so that we could have more of a high hodgepodge of, of standards by the individual stakeholders in that, not as a, not as an arbitrary, like you mentioned, same sex marriage, not the government stepping in and saying, this is what our state's going to do, but individual leagues, individual parents, individual organizations and so forth coming up with these types of standards. But I mean, it's going to, like you said, one thing that we can all agree on, there's gonna be a lot of lawsuits, like just a lot of them. So as someone in the legal field, congratulations on the boon to your industry that this is going to provide. Before I let you go, Courtney, you've been a fantastic guest. It's really been a fascinating conversation. Before I let you go, I just want to give you a chance to give uh, your final take. Any any Anything that you didn't think we had a chance to talk about, anything you want to promote that's upcoming, uh, Courtney Cahill, Professor Courtney Cahill, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you. I mean, not really. I think we covered a, like a good, a wide field. You know, I did like what you said. I just kind of want to bring it to the surface because I think it's important about this kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't with respect to these, the anti-trans medical bills that don't yeah. allow puberty blockers are creating a situation where if what we're worried about in the sports context is an unfair advantage, like exactly what you're saying, right? Yep. Like if we're worried about an unfair advantage because of testosterone, but if that's suppressed starting young ages, right? Before muscle development and all of this, right? Then you wouldn't have that, right? So it's almost like one is kind of, as you, as you nicely put out, they're kind of reinforcing the other. They're creating the impossible situation. Well, and, and, and they're often they want to I know I said I give you the last word, but I'm, I'm going to agree with you, which is kind of like a last word for you. It's just yeah. me. Yeah. It's me mansplaining yeah. what you just said. No. I, so I, I, I will say this. Um, and you're in your 100 percent correct. It's also in the bathroom situation. OK, so you can't use the bathroom of your. Uh, uh, your 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 uh, preferred or your your uh, stated gender. But then if you go into the other bathroom, that's going to be a problem, too, because you're present. You're a trans woman. You're presenting as a woman, but you're walking into a men's room. Yeah. And and when I would ask people, uh, well, who are uh, who were in favor of these trans bills and this again, back when I was more conservative, leaning on a lot of this stuff, I'd say, which one are you okay with them using? And they'd say, I wouldn't want them to go anywhere. In other words, you just don't want them to be accommodated in any way. And that's not everyone that was in favor of these bills. But a lot of them, or I would say possibly most of them, the underlying statement here was, we don't want you around us. We don't want you in the store. We don't want you in any sports. We don't want you participating in anything. We don't like you. We want you to stop doing this. And if you end up dead, that makes it more convenient for our concept of what sex and and, and gender is. And that is the problem. It's fine for us to have these disagreements on the on, you know, whether uh, we're protecting women's sports with these things or whether we're discriminating against people or whether that's right or whether that's wrong. But when you're creating a situation of impossibility and where the underlying subtext there and your belief is, I don't give a crap what happens to these people. I just don't want to even have to look at them. You're dehumanizing people in the most strict and explicit way. And that that is wrong in all situations. I completely agree with you. So the reason why 
<laughs> back to incest. The reason why I was so fascinated with incest was not necessarily because of incest per se, but because of the emotion of disgust. So back when I first became a law professor, I did a lot of work on disgust. And I looked at sort of anthropologists who had written about disgust. I looked at cognitive scientists who wrote about disgust. You know, and it was fascinating, right? Like this emotion is truly the tail wagging the dog. Yep. And that's what's going on here, right? Like, yeah. and, and Mary Douglas, who was kind of, you know, very well-known English anthropologist who wrote a book, fabulous book called Purity and Danger. And it was all about like society's purity rituals, right? And her theory of disgust was my favorite of all the theories I read, which was, she said, disgust is our reaction to matter out of place. So she said, nothing is inherently disgusting, right? Like, so dirt on the ground, that's not disgusting, but dirt on my bed, well, now it's a little bit more, right? Yeah, yeah, But stuff that crosses its category, it's stuff that crosses the line, right? So like that for me explains, that's my kind of Cahill's meta theory of law, right? We want things to color in the line, just stay in the line. And once you go out of the line, you're making me nervous. So anyway, so I, I totally No, you're I, right. I think that's what it is, right? Cahill's say that again, Cahill's Great, like meta theory of law. Cahill's it, meta theory of law. Yeah, it's disgust management. I right? like this. No, you're right. Incest, perfect example. Do I want two consenting adults to go to prison? For engaging in sexual – no, but am I disgusted by incest? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a – yeah. Right? You know, and, and it turns out there's this psychologist whose work is amazing. He's now at NYU at, this, at Stern Business School. named Jonathan Haidt. And he is in some – he did some great – also in his early work on disgust. And he's really interested in incest. And that's where, like, he would interview – Students, he was at the University of Virginia, and he would interview students and would say, like, what do you think about, you know, a brother and a sister, you know, having sex? Right. And they'd say, that's disgusting. And he, they, he would say, why? And they would say, because of genetic harm. And then he would say, oh, well, they're both infertile. <laughs> disgusting. Why? Because there's a power differential or whatever. They grew up in the same house. Oh, but they did it. They were like a long lost brother and sister that grew up in different households. Well, that's just disgusting, right? Like, and so it was, he, you know, kind of pushed people into a corner in order to kind of bring out the fact that it's disgust that's doing the work, right? right. It's that's driving, driving the, disgust is really doing most of the work in kind of our moral foundations. No, you're right. And we have success. You you have succeeded in that we have ended on incest. So, so no. Hey, listen. No, it's it, it's a it's a perfect example of how this works. So, Courtney, yeah. Professor yeah. Cahill, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, uh, hopefully, we can hopefully we can have you on again in the future. This was a fascinating conversation. I would love to. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was a really, really cool discussion. Uh, the interesting thing there is that uh, also she did say uh, afterwards, uh, right before uh, I had to go, um, she said, I took the jacket off, by the way. Now I'm doing the after hours thing here. Um, I asked her if she'd like to come on again, and she said yes. And I promised that next time we would find a way to seamlessly integrate 14th century Italian law um, and literature 
into it and probably incest because that seems to be her bag which is Folks, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. Uh, join uh, tomorrow, Thursday night. Matt Wright may or may not be doing an episode of the Muddy Waters of, of the Writer's Block. Not the Muddy Waters, Writer's Block. Who will his guest be? I don't know if he'll even be having a show, but if he is, tune in tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern. Same writer's time, same writer's place. Uh, And then join me this weekend uh, at the Libertarian Party of California's convention in beautiful Visalia, California. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I assume Visalia. It's near Fresno. If you go to lpcalifornia.org, you can find out more about their convention. Come on, hang out with me. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be speaking. I'm going to be attending workshops. Uh, Yes, my wife will be there. I already know you're going to ask that. Yes, she'll be there. Yes. And uh, so come out and see me uh, and then come right back here next Tuesday for the Muddy Waters of Freedom where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet little 2020 wonder cherubs that we are. And also, of course, uh, tune in right back here. Same spike place, same spike time. Actually, no, different spike time, 8 p.m. Usual time. Same spike place, usual spike time uh, for the next episode, the hundred and. First, I almost said one, the 101st episode of My Fellow Americans with my special guest. I don't know. Um, oh, actually, no, I do know who our guest is going to be. It's uh, the uh, For All Tennessee is coming back. They successfully passed uh, a bill that ends no knock raids and a bunch of other harmful police practices in Tennessee. And they're going to come on to talk about they're going to do a little dunking on uh, they're going to dunk on their haters uh, and talk about some of the uh, the hard work they've been doing at the Tennessee legislature. Can't wait to have them on. Um, folks, as I said before, uh, you can always go to anchor.fm slash muddied waters. You can leave questions for us, uh, leave messages for us, and we will listen to them and answer them uh, during the Muddy Waters of Freedom. You can also make donations uh, and you can become a monthly supporter of the Muddy Waters of Freedom. Uh, and so I'm going to read off the names of our monthly supporters who we greatly, greatly appreciate. Uh, those are Justin Mickelson, Zachary Martin, Tim Pollan, Josh McCose, Selena Stewart, Kenneth Ebel, uh, Sean Sparkman, Jim Lee, uh, or James E. Lee, I'm sorry. It's Jimmy. Uh, Daniel Faust, Dan Faust, Jennifer Morrison, Jack Casey, Jeff DePoy, Andrea O'Donnell, Chris Reynolds, personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law, Kenneth Ebel again, Meg Jones, and Billy Pierce for Texas. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this. And thank you for watching this. Uh, we will see you right back here, maybe on Thursday. I will hopefully see you in California. Uh, and then we will see you for the Muddy Waters of Freedom next week. And my fellow Americans, have a great rest of your evening. I will see you very soon. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys.
my kin. Though I view the world through another's iris. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together, become hybrid. At the least, slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye in a time with the blind the blind. Who am I to deny? I would cry when a loved one dies. I recognize that body outside. Put the holes in the body that was alive. Now we find with chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at nine. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these tears, I close my eyes. Open up to only find I'm in line. Why?